Uh, let's go ahead and just start with prayer today. Um, I, I wish we would sing that song before every, every time I preach, because it's very nice to sing that as you're going up to preach um, and remember that God is good. Um, so yeah, let's go, ahead and, let's go ahead and just start with prayer today. Dear Jesus, I, I thank you that we can be here. I thank you for the safety this morning, driving here, God, despite the weather. Thank you for, for everyone that's here, God. I, I, I thank you for everything you've done in our lives this week. Pray that you would um, reveal to us today, God, from your word, what you would have us to learn. Uh, and this includes me too, God. Even though I've, I've looked at this passage countless times over now, God, I pray that you would continue to, to teach me, to help me learn from this. God, help us to learn more about you and how we can further glorify you and serve for you, God. I pray this all in your name. All right, so good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys. Um, I looked at the weather for today, and I was a little worried about what would happen because I saw that negative 20, what it feels like negative 20 on the wind chill, and I was like, I don't know if people are going to come. And then I got in my car, and my power steering was not working. And so I tried to pull out of our driveway, and I was like, <clears throat> like trying to force it over. And luckily, I got out onto the street, and it, it started working a little bit better. But So even I was a little worried, like, am I going to be able to make it today? I don't know. But here we are. God, is, God has provided. Um, if you remember last summer, some of you were here, some of you weren't then. Uh, last summer, I preached over Psalms 34, the first 10 verses of that. Uh, and if you remember some of, the, some of the highlights from that, you know, learning what, it, what does it mean to look to the Lord for our safety, our provision? Uh, what does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? Um, and I preached over those, those first 10 verses of Psalms, uh, Psalms 34. Uh, and today, I'm going to continue preaching over that. I'm going to exposit through the rest of it, verses 11 through 22. Um, and I actually just realized, I don't think I have my, the clicker. Otherwise, I'd put it up there for you. Okay, well, it'll come up in a second. Um, so yeah, some of you may not remember this, but some of you may. I am going to recap just a little bit of it, so that way those of you who weren't here will be able to follow along a little bit better today. Um, and in Psalms 34, we found that true reliance on God to deliver us is the key. True reliance on God, true looking to the Lord for our salvation, for our, for our safety, for him to uplift us, is extremely valuable. And we saw how David went through circumstances that called for this. Um, in the passage, we learned that David was, well, Saul was trying to kill David. And he tried to a few different times. And, so, and David ended up having to flee from Saul, from Israel, having to leave his friends, his, his family, everything, his home. I mean, can you imagine that? You're basically your boss trying to kill you. When you were anointed to be the next king, God promised something to you, and all of a sudden you're ripped away from everything. And David, in, in almost sort of the heat of the moment, what you can imagine, David begins to, he flees to, to the city of Gath, which is a Philistine city. And those of you who know, remember this. Philistines and Israelites are, are not friends. They're not. And Gath actually was the, the, uh, the hometown of Goliath. Maybe, maybe not David's, you know, best moment there, <laughs> best decision making. Uh, he actually ended up, too, going to the temple to get a weapon because he felt like he needed that safety, and he got Goliath's sword and brought it with him to Gath. Not, not David's best moment, but when he got there, 
he thought, okay, you know, Saul, where is Saul going to look for me? It's not going to be in Gath. Saul's not going to look in Gath for David. Because remember, he's on the run from Saul at this point. So he gets to Gath, and wouldn't you know it, he gets recognized because David, they sung about David. David has killed his ten thousands. So they know David. And when he gets there, he basically has to act insane. They bring him before the king, and he has to act like an insane man. He makes weird markings on the walls and foams at the mouth, and is all hunched over and weird. And, and they, they, they think that they recognize him, and they bring him to the king, and the king's like, this, what are you guys talking about? This isn't David. So they, 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 they eventually let David leave, you know, because the king says, get him out of my presence. I don't, I don't want to see this man. He's not David. Um, and David flees to what is the cave of, of Adullam, which is near uh, Bethlehem at the time. And this, this area is, is pretty much the slums. It's filled with, with debtors, with people who have been oppressed by Saul at this time. And it, and it was just a, it was a, it was a, a bad place to be. But David gets to this cave, and he, he, um, in this cave he writes Psalms 34, which is a praise song to God. In the midst of, of seemingly losing his promise from God that, that he was to be the next king. You know, this current king is trying to kill me. The, the army of Israel is after me. And amidst all this, he gives, he gives a praise song. He writes a praise song to God. Uh, and he still said in, in verse 8, taste and see that God is good. He still says in verses 1 through 3, the praises of God. He says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And I, I, in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, he, there's a couple key phrases that I had to not skip over, but I couldn't go into detail for you for the sake of time. And those were the, the phrases regarding the fear of the Lord. And I even joked, I don't know if you guys remember this, I joked I could make a whole other sermon about that. And, well, here we are. <laughs> so today I want to talk about what the fear of the Lord is from this perspective of, of this passage. There we go. What is the fear of the Lord from the perspective of this passage? Psalms 34. And a slight overview in, in general of the Bible as well. But that you got to realize the fear of the Lord, this is something that is so expansive in the Bible. It is, it is one, always one of the most important things for Christians to have. I can't possibly cover all of it in one Sunday morning. But we are going to do our best to, to look at it specifically from this passage. We're also going to look at uh, what are the results of the fear of the Lord? What does that look like when you fear God? What does that look like in your life? What are the tangible ed evidences of this? And then we're also going to look at a contrast between the one who fears God and the one who doesn't. What does that look like? What, is the, what are the differences between their lives? And I think Psalms 34 is, is a great way to see this played out. There are three stanzas in this passage, and, and the, first, uh, the first three verses, or four verses, 11 through 14, highlight that first point, and the next, you know, the next parts, the, the stanzas line up so well with these points. So let's go ahead and read over uh, verses 11 through 22, and I think I've got it up here. Yeah. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and, and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers him out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So we see right away a stark contrast. For those of you, I I didn't read the first 10 verses today, but there is a stark contrast in the tone. Um, And this takes the form of of a different, basically a different writing style. Uh, Because the first 10 verses are very much poetry. They're very much a, a psalm a song. And these are still a part of that song, but they're a different shift. They're almost like a combination of poetry and wisdom literature. Um, if you see at the beginning there, the, well here, let me go back to it. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That almost sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? In a way. It's, it's almost this combination of, of both wisdom literature and poetry that David is, is trying to convey here, something, something about wisdom, something that we should learn, that we should take from. Uh, Derek Kinder, who is a, a, a commentary author um, who wrote numerous works over, over the Psalms and, and over other books of the Bible, um, he says the first half of the Psalm alternates between personal testimony and repeated calls to join in the praise and be stimulated to fresh faith. I think we would agree with that, right? Those first ten Psalms, especially the taste and see that the Lord is good, it's, you know, it, it's a song. It paints this beautiful image of faith. And in this part, though, he says, the lessons of this part of the psalm are chiefly that the true good is to be in conquered with God. It is the answer to the hardest times and to the most ultimate questions. So David changes here from, from sheer praise of the Lord, this, this praise song. He changes to, to a teaching of what it means to fear the Lord and why that's important in our lives. There's something so important that David wants to convey here to the listener. I think we need to start to tune into that. How do we get to where David was in those first 10 verses? Where he's able to, in the midst of everything that's going on, he's in the midst of all that, he's able to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we get there? Well, we read these passages. David begins to explain what the fear of the Lord is in, the verse, in verses 11 through 14, and he's still, uh, he's still with these other people in these verses. Remember, because he's with all these other people, and he begins to address them. Oh, come, old children, listen to me. Um, and he, he may be explaining to them what it is and why it's so important. So we can almost imagine ourselves listening in with all these people, beginning to, to tune in to what David's trying to convey to us. So this is our first point of the day. Oh. What is the fear of the Lord? And as I talked about before, this is just an expansive topic. I can't possibly cover it all right now, but we're going to look at these first three verses and, and see, or four, I keep saying three, these first four verses and see um, what this is. Um, sorry, something got messed up there. Um, now, what do you think of when you think of fear of the Lord? What's your first thought? Now, many of you seasoned... Uh, Bible people, I guess you could say. <laughs> Many of you who have been in your Bibles for a long time now, you know what the fear of the Lord is. 
uh, you know it's more than just the initial thought of fearing the Lord. But I remember when I was younger and I first started to listen to, like to really begin to understand what was happening in the Bible. And I heard the fear of the Lord phrase sometimes. And I always thought, oh, it's a, a church phrase. You know, I'll, I, I, like you get this vague understanding, but you don't really know what it means yet. Um, but the fear of the Lord, and, and I started to think, you know, okay, well, maybe it's like, you know, all these other tribes and nations around this time that would, that would make sacrifices out of fear to their gods, you know, like to protect themselves, you know, the, the child sacrifices you would see throughout the Bible. Um, maybe it's like that. That's what, that was my first impression. Um, and, the, you know, all of these nomads and these olden cities who worshipped whatever god that they would make sacrifices to abate you know, whatever penalty they may be facing for something that they did or didn't do, uh, maybe to bring rain, you know, that they, they almost had this cowering in the corner type of fear. And I think that's what I thought the fear of the Lord was when I first encountered it when I was younger. And this often gets tied into our perspective of God, doesn't it? This, this idea that the, the, we need to be fearing God in almost a cowering in the corner sense. Sometimes that we as Christians, we almost think that where we need to do something right in order to appease God now. Like we've done something wrong, and we're, now we're scared. Oh, oh God, he's going to get me. I gotta be, I'm scared. I've got to make a sacrifice to him or something. I've got to do something good real quick. Get back on his good side. Why would we be scared of someone who is supposedly our firm foundation? Someone who offers care and love and protection. He's the God of comfort, isn't he? And yet we're supposed, to, we're supposed to fear him? What? That doesn't make any sense. So there's obviously more here to this, this fear of the Lord. Well, let's look and see what the Bible really says about the fear of the Lord. Uh, this one is potentially one of the most well-known passages. Um, it's Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wait a second, that doesn't have anything to do with being scared of God. Why is it the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? You see almost this, this beginning of like a dissonance here, a disconnect between, between the fear of the Lord and the beginning of knowledge. Why, why would we fear God to get smarter? <laughs> now, who would say that they don't want to get smarter? I, I'm fine being a little dumb. Who's, who's going to say that? You know, maybe it's not about the most scholarly things, but you would say you want to get better at your, at your craft, at your trade. You want to get better at your job. You want to know better how to socialize with people. Well, what's the beginning of that? How do you begin to learn that? The fear of the Lord. So you can begin to see it is, it is a prerequisite to other things in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes we disconnect from the fear of the Lord, like it's not a really a necessary part of our salvation, but yet it's the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you want to be the fool? No, I don't think any of us would. I think most of us in this room would say we want more knowledge. We want to enhance the quality of that knowledge. We want to enhance the, the amount that we have. But now look at Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Whoa, okay, hold on. Take a step back. He's supposed to be the God of comfort. But he's an all-consuming fire. 
once again, there's this disconnect here where it, it doesn't seem to make sense. How is the Lord the beginning of knowledge? How is He the God of comfort? Yet He is an all-consuming fire. But this is exactly the point. When we become saved, when God saves us, we are now, as God says in the book of Isaiah, being upheld by God. We are now being upheld by that all-consuming fire. We are being upheld by the, the beginning of knowledge, the creator of knowledge. That's exactly the point. That's why we want that. In fact, let's look at this Isaiah passage, 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Every time you reach a lower low in your life, where you think, I can't possibly get worse than this, Nothing could be worse than this. God is there. God meets you there. When you reach your highest moments in life, God is there. And sometimes we forget he brought us there. God is powerful and deserving of reverence, and that's exactly why we fear him. This fear isn't a cowering in the corner type of fear. We're not sitting and scared, hiding from him, like Adam and Eve in the garden. God has bought us back. We are redeemed, and now he is with us to the end. He is upholding us. We have a reverence for him. We stand in awe at how much he loves us and how powerful a God we have at our backs. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So what does David say about this fear of the Lord? Let's look. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he's going to teach us what it is. But he starts then in verse 12, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Now here's another question. Who doesn't want to live at least a little longer? You know, who, wants to, who doesn't want to live some amount of time? And who doesn't want to see good in their lives? That's what David's saying. Who doesn't? So what, is he, what does he say after that? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So if we want to get to this fear of the Lord, he said he's going to teach us it. And he said this is applicable to everyone in verse 12. Because nobody doesn't want this. That's a double negative. It's weird, I know. But everyone wants to participate in this. Everyone wants to... Everyone desires life, and everyone wants to see good in their lives. So what do we do then? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Don't speak evil of others. Don't speak with intent to bring others down. Keep your lips from deceit. You know, sometimes for me, lying can almost fall on the back burner of sins. There's a lot of sins that we have to deal with on a regular basis. And sometimes the, the little white lies, it can fall almost on the back burner where it's like, I know that's bad, but I, I got so much other stuff I'm dealing with right now. But what does David say here? This is the fear of the Lord, is keeping your lips from speaking deceit. Keep your tongue from evil. Look, at, look with me at Psalms 105. 
or 101, verses 5 through 7. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Think about that for a second. God will not endure you. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. I mean, imagine a father saying that to their children. Little five-year-old child. No one who, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. That's what God said to us. We're his children. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. And that's what David is hitting on, is this idea that practicing deceit is the opposite of, the fearing, of fearing the Lord, is the opposite of respecting God, is the opposite of having reverence for him. There are countless passages talking about and, and warning against lying, against deceitfulness. Don't let it fall on the back burner. Don't let your, your, the control of your tongue and your lips fall on the back burner. And you may wonder why David is hammering on the topic of our mouths so much, but look at with me at James 3, 3 through 6. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they, are, they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. This passage is talking specifically about teachers right here. James is talking about teachers and how we need to be careful. But this is so applicable to all of us, isn't it? The little things you say, the little things you, you say when you don't think anybody else is listening, the thoughts that cross your mind, you know, these things, how, how great, how small a fire can set a forest ablaze. Fear God. Ask Him to help you control your tongue, control your mouth. This thought continues in verse 14 and with the more general statement of staying away from evil and pursuing good. I think I... No. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Many Christians, when they are saved, they fall into a, a trap of just being neutral to evil. Sometimes we, we fall into sort of a rhythm of life and we forget about this fact that we are supposed to be, we're supposed to turn away from evil and do good. There's two actions there. Derek Kinder says that here that this teaching, fear the Lord, uh, the good you enjoy in verse 12. So look at verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? This, this idea, the good you enjoy, goes hand in hand with the good you do. It is an emphasis which answers the suspicion that outside of the will of God, rather than in it, lies enrichment. We don't simply live to see good in our lives, we live to do good. 
there's more to it than just, than just seeing that good. We're supposed to turn away from evil and do good. I think Christians, we, we, we fall into one of two paths. Either when we get saved, sometimes we, we're walking this way, right? We're walking down the path of evil. We're walking down towards sin. And when we get saved, we're supposed to take a 180 and walk the other way. You're supposed to turn away from evil and do good. And sometimes we, we get here and we, we, we get saved and we're like, oh. And then you just stand there. You get the turn away from evil part, but you don't start progressing. You don't start doing good. And some of us, we become split then. Some of, it, some of you know the, to, the do good part, but you don't always turn away from evil. But what does this passage say? Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The, the do right there, do good, it seems almost simple, but there's so much power behind that. Whatever you do, you're doing it. You're doing good. You're seeking that peace and you're pursuing it. Um, I have another passage up here. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the holy duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. It doesn't stop at just getting saved and, and kind of living your life how you, how you lived it before. There's a difference there. There's a turning and a doing of good. So what happens when we do this, right? What happens when we, when we fear the Lord? What is the result of that fearing? Well, that's what, that, that's what verses 15 through 18 are here to answer for. And these verses make up that second point of what is the result. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, the word toward here in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. That is a, a very powerful word. And it's, and it's kind of summarized almost too simply in, in this passage with the English language. Uh, that word toward is very much a, a support. It's for. The eyes of the Lord, they are, they are there watching you. His ears are listening to you. They're toward you. When, uh, when Lot pitched his tent, it says, the Bible says it pitched it towards Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he was for. That's what he was in support of. That's what he wanted. And it's the same word here. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. I'm going to say the word toward more than I ever have in my whole life right now. <laughs> This may seem unimportant, this word right now, but if you think about how fantastic that is to hear, it is so powerful. God is not just up in heaven occasionally looking down at you. God puts his eyes on you and watches everything you do and listens to everything you say. He is for you, not against you. He is not looking 
past you into the future at all times, never actually looking at you. He's not just looking behind you at your mistakes. He's looking at you. He hears your cry. This is both incredibly comforting and, and pretty terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, every good thing you do, every evil thing you do, God sees it. He's listening. He hears every passing thought, every minor comment, every insult, every blessing, every prayer, everything. God hears it all. He's watching. He's listening to you. God is not deaf to what you say, even if it feels like he isn't listening. God hears you, and he has not forsaken you. Fear him, and his eyes will be towards you, and his ears will be towards you. They will be for you. Which is so powerful, isn't it? God is for you. All of his senses, it's almost like it's describing his senses are for you. David then contrasts this thought in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the face of the earth. Now, that's a weird way. It's almost like an interesting insult that you've never heard before. But it, it's, it's to cut off the memory of them from the face of the earth. Think about that for a second. In, in this time, when David wrote this, what was so important was people remembering your name through your family, through your land, whatever it may be, cutting off your memory from the earth was awful. And I think it still is today. Imagine if you died and nobody ever thought about you ever again, and you were dead. Now, even though we know life continues on past our physical body's death, we still want to leave that impact on others, that we did something good. We want to have, have done something for God in our lives. But those who are evil, their memory will be cut off from the face of the earth. That's very descriptive language. <laughs> When we deal with that, you have to remember, you have to remember your memory will be cut off from the face of the earth. David here shows that those who do not fear God will be forgotten. They will, be, they will not be remembered as their memory is cut off from the earth. And if, you need to ask yourself, is this the fate that you want to befall you? And verse 17 continues, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God does not stop at just hearing you. Look at the verse. When the righteous cry for help, so when you pray to God, you ask Him for help, the Lord hears and delivers. He doesn't stop at just hearing you. Because remember, we know that He listens. The eyes and the ears are towards you. But He doesn't just stop there. He hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God is not a God who sits and listens. I mean, just look at the life of David. Look through his whole life. Even just right now, this little, this little segment of what he's done. He was promised king, kingship over Israel. But yet, here, he's, he's nowhere near that. He's being chased down by Israel, by Israel's soldiers. But he says God hears and delivers them out of their troubles. And he knew that God had a hand in his, his escape from Saul and his escape from King Achish. David is still thankful throughout this passage and throughout the other Psalms, to be honest. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What's interesting about this verse, um, once again, the, the intense uh, uh, phraseology, almost, phraseology, draw near, saves. 
These words don't stop at their surface layer meanings. The English language was just not able to fully describe what they meant. Commentator John Goldengay explains how the word near means drawing close with intent for action. So once again, we see that echoed, that, that God draws near to you. He hears your cry, but he doesn't stop there. He has intent for action. And so many times it feels like he doesn't. Even if we know that he's listening to us, sometimes it feels like, God, what are you doing? Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. But God has that intent for action. This is followed by, by saves, which is the action in the second line. And saves the crushed in spirit. Those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit, God is ready to move and save them. He does not just listen, he saves. These first four verses demonstrate how, how God interacts with those who are, who are fearing or not fearing him. Those who fear him will receive his attention in a positive way. Those who don't will be a negative way. They'll be wiped from memory. And the first four verses that we saw in this passage shows what the fear of the Lord is, while these showed the result of the fear of the Lord. And then in the end, we get the difference between the one who fears and the one who is wicked. We begin to see that already in the last, in verse uh, 16, where the one who is, who is evil will be wiped from the face of the earth. These last four verses in many ways continue that idea that's been set up. But now focus instead more on the contrasting lives of those who fear God and those who do not fear God. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This verse is something we know well at this church, don't we? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We may also have a tendency to forget about the second line, though, of that verse. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. This passage is filled with promises. God is constantly hearing. God is constantly delivering. He's drawing near with intent to move. This passage is filled with them. The first, the first 10 verses of Psalm 34 were a beautiful praise song, and this is, this is almost the why behind this, behind those praises, that God is drawing near with intent to action, and David realized this despite his, his uh, circumstances. Don't forget about verses 15 through 18 when you hit verse 19. Don't forget that God is drawing near with intent for action when you hit that part. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It doesn't say maybe are the afflictions of the righteous. <laughs> it doesn't say few are the afflictions of the righteous. It says many. So don't forget about the rest of the passage when you encounter that in your life. And don't forget about the end of verse 19 either. God, God hears you and protects you. If something bad happens to you, God has a sovereign plan. He is drawn near with intent for action. So expect trials and expect temptations. But remember that if you fear God and he is your number one priority, he is there, he is listening, and you can rely on him to save you. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, I would say most of us in here are Christians. Have any of you ever broken your bones? So, what, wait, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Wait, hold on, God, I thought you said I wasn't going to break any bones, and then you go out, and well, we have Aaron. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> what is interesting here is that David is actually speaking prophetically. This is just a prophecy that was, that was fulfilled in Jesus. 
Now, did Jesus ever break a bone? I, we don't know. He, he, in his childhood, he may have tripped and fallen. Maybe he had a tree on, fall on him too. I don't know. We aren't told that. But look at John 19, 33 and 36. But when they came to Jesus, so he was up on the cross. This is during the crucifixion. And a tradition that they had during the, during the crucifixion was at towards the end of the day, they would, they would come and break the bones, the, the leg bones of the criminals that were up on the cross because they had to support themselves to be able to breathe. So if you broke the bones of the legs, they would suffocate and die. So this tradition, when they were about to carry the sound on Jesus, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, and this is our scripture, not one of, these, not one of his bones will be broken. Whether or not David knew here that he was speaking about the Messiah is not fully understood, and it's debated between many scholars. However, we can take away this. We do not need to fear our circumstances. We need to fear the Lord. Our circumstances and our pain and our trials and our temptations and you name it, whatever it is, they can only cut so deep. We may break our physical bodies, sure, but, but God's word and God's will will come to pass and he will protect us. What can do more damage? The attacks of others, insults, torture for Christ? What can do more damage? God or something physical? Because on this earth, we can only be attacked physically. But this passage here, it's, it's such a good metaphor for our, our spiritual lives. Man cannot cut to the spirit. That's what we need to take away from this verse. Look even at verse 21 then. I think I've got it up here. Oh, well, there's your nice little quote. Um, oh, I thought I put it there again. 21, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. When affliction hits, it will break the wicked. Because it's promised here, too, that affliction is going to hit everyone. There are going to be many afflictions for us, and there will be afflictions for the wicked. But who's going to break? It won't be us. God is going to keep all of our bones. Not one will be broken, whereas the affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the ones who are truly destroyed by the afflictions are the ones who are wicked, the ones who will, will fall and be wiped from the face of the earth. Now think about the, uh, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? Because I think this is a beautiful picture for this as well. The, there is a storm coming, but who's going to be the one to weather that storm? Because it never says that the storm isn't going to hit the wise man that built his house upon the rock. That storm is still going to hit his house. Might get a little leaky roof, we don't know. But whose house is going to stay standing? It's going to be the one who built his house upon the rock. The view from the beach, where I imagine the, the foolish man built his house, is, is probably great. It's a probably great view, instead of up on a rock. But who's going to be the one that weathers the storm? The last half of verse 21 and verse 22 as a whole echo this sentiment in an extremely gospel-esque way. You see the gospel just laid out right here. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That word condemned there can also be translated to held to their guilt. Those who hate the righteous will be held to their guilt. None of those who take refuge in him will be held to their guilt. Think about it that way. David probably didn't know here fully what he was talking about. He may not have fully understood the, the full picture here, but we do because we ha- we've seen Jesus. He was looking forward to Jesus coming, but now we can look back and see the full story. And that should give us cause to praise even more than he did. How much David praised there? We should praise even more because we've seen it played out. We've seen how Jesus had come and saved us and fulfilled these promises. He redeemed our life. This means like we can praise like David did with, an even more, with even more assurance of God's power and with an amplified fear of the Lord. Not in a cower-in-the-corner way, but with a respect, with an awe that he fulfilled all these promises. He is a consuming fire, but he is one that is at our backs, supporting us, listening to us. The entirety of Psalm 34 is a praise song. It's a call to fear for he who cares for us. The first 10 verses demonstrate and call for that continual, fervent, passionate praise. The last 11 verses teach us the fear of the Lord and what that looks like in our own lives. We just see the gospel laid out. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. What's more gospel than that? Realize that reliance on God and putting your trust and your fear and respect, everything in God, you will not be disappointed. He will look towards you and you will, you will taste and see how good God is that he provides, that he hears your call, that he moves. He has intent for action. Take heed to the wisdom David conveys. Follow David's example. Despite his unknown circumstances, he held strong. He built his house upon the rock. Rest in the truth with the afflictions inevitably coming your way. You cannot stop them from happening, but you can be prepared. He is listening to you even if it doesn't feel like it. He is, he is moving and guiding you and uplifting you even if you don't see it. God is there listening to the one who fears and relies on God to pull through, not on our own skill or understanding, but the one who relies on him, the one who leans on him. Don't let yourself be caught up with the things of the world and putting God lower and lower on your, on your mental priority list. Rely on God, rest in God, and fear him above all else. Because nothing in this world can match the consuming, ever-present fire that is our creator. The creator of the universe. He is mighty and we should rightly fear him. We should have reverence for him. He is God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today, poor people. As David says, we are poor, God. We have nothing. We come to you with nothing, God, but we we come to you with fear and reverence. You are the all-consuming fire, God, and and we want that at our backs. We need your support. We need your, your uplifting. We need you to draw near with intent for action. God, be with us today and help us to remember this. In your name, amen.